0: Thanks so much for tuning in to the Mooney Ponds Baptist Church podcast. Here we upload our weekly teachings that happen every Sunday at our 10am service. If we can help you in any way, feel free to reach out to us. And check out our website at mpbc.org.au Good morning. I'm here to bring you guys the reading today. And I'm reading from Luke chapter 7, verses 11 to 23. And I'm reading from the New International Version. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her and said, don't cry. Then he went up and touched the bier they were carrying him on and the bearers stood still. He said, Young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. They were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. This news about Jesus spread throughout the Judea and the surrounding country. John's disciples told him about all these things. Calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord to ask, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised. And the good news is proclaimed to the poor, blessed, who is, blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Now I have another reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 3 to 8 and I'm reading from the New Living Translation. I pass on to you what is most what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins just as the scriptures said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day just as the scriptures said. He was seen by Peter and then by the 12, after that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he went; he was seen by James, and later by all the apostles. Last of all, as though I had been born at the wrong time, I also saw him. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 to 16, still NLT. But tell me this, Since we preach that Christ rose from the dead, why are some of you saying there will be no resurrection of the dead? For if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, then all our preaching is useless and your faith is useless. And we apostles would all be lying about God, for we have said that God raised Christ from the grave, but that can't be true if there is no resurrection of the dead. And if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. Thank you.
1: Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you, as we heard last week, that it's actually what you have inspired people to write down. It's, uh, and what we've heard today is actually a, a testimony of what the Lord Jesus did so many years ago. Lord, I pray that you would uh, encourage us this morning, open our hearts and our minds to receive what you have for us. I pray that today we would leave here being encouraged by your word so much that it would change us, that it would impact us, that we would do what the word says. May we be people who not only listen to the word of God, but people who do it. I pray, Lord, and invite you to come on behalf of my friends here this morning, to come and do your work in us by the Spirit this morning. And together we say, Amen. Amen. Children, uh, Christ go out, uh, but uh, youth can go out too at this point. And they'll be joining Nathan in their meeting. Well, I've, uh, I've experienced what I believe are miracles. Uh, I've seen God answer prayer for healing and I've seen uh, deliverance of people from demonic spirits and they defy any other explanation apart from God in my own mind as I've thought about them. But I've also prayed for healing at different times and in desperation and faith and actually not seen a miracle occur. And yet despite this, I continue to pray and I ask God every day to do things beyond me, things that uh, I have no capacity to change myself or I don't perceive that any human has the capacity to change. And I wholeheartedly believe that God can do those things if he wills. Now, I'm not sure what you think about miracles this morning. Some of you obviously have said you believe in them. Uh, While others have said they don't, and maybe there's more here this morning who haven't answered that or have some doubts, maybe you're very confident, and that's great, and uh, maybe you've had an easy time believing miracles, perhaps you've even experienced them yourself. But I know there are others here today who do find it difficult to believe that they are true, and this might be because you feel that God has let you down, not answered your prayers in times of great trouble. I stand with you. I feel that this morning because I have also wrestled with that myself. you struggled to rationalise them with what you know also about the laws of nature and the universe in which we live. But if you... um, Believe that miracles are not possible, then you're not alone. We live in an age of scepticism about miracles and about the supernatural. We know that. The evolutionary biologist and atheist, again, I'm quoting from him, Richard Dawkins, says that Bible, biblical stories of miracles are just fairy tales and that anyone with an ounce of common sense would completely dismiss even the idea of supernatural events as belief in miracles is only for the uneducated, the gullible, or the simple-minded. Now we've got a problem there this morning because the difficulty for Christians is that the Bible is full of miracles. And in fact, the reason, the whole reason for our faith, the reason we're actually meeting here this morning rests on one miracle being true, which is the resurrection of Jesus. And so the, uh, the New Testament, particularly the Gospels, as you read them, you'll find that they are full of stories of Jesus going around and actually doing miracles and supernatural type things. He heals people and does other things. And In fact, during the three years of his ministry, three and a half years of his ministry, it shows him healing people with many diseases and physical disabilities. He heals people born blind. He heals people who are paralyzed, people with leprosy, people who are deaf. He enables them to hear. People who have seizures... They stop. And people who are dead, like we saw, like uh, Sean, Dr. Sean this morning, uh, he raised three people from the dead. And, but Jesus' miracles don't just stop with healing. We actually see that uh, he calmed a storm. He walked on water. He turned water into wine. He fed thousands of people with just a few loaves of bread and a few fish and more. What should we do then with these miracle stories in the Bible? Do we just relegate them to myth, to fairy stories, as Dawkins would say? What should we even do with this this story that we heard this morning, the recent one from a doctor in in WA about miracles, The, the claims that people make, and there are many claims that people make of experiencing miracles. We have on our Mentimeter this morning, a number of people said that they've experienced them themselves. So we're currently in this series called Towards Belief and we're looking at belief blockers, things that actually prevent us believing or prevent other people from actually taking that step to follow Jesus themselves. And so today, miracles and the supernatural are one of those things. And though, therefore, I want to look at the evidence for miracles as well as why it's important to believe that God does do miracles and what miracles roll what, what role miracles play in our lives today? And so to explore that, I want us to look at it through the story of Jesus raising the widow of Nain's son, as we've had read this morning beautifully by Micah. You see, as Jesus and his disciples are actually out on their itinerant ministry, in fact, Luke chapter 7 is actually full of miracles. He's just healed uh, the uh, slave of a uh, Roman centurion, not even by going there. (laughs) He didn't even have to see the guy. And then they're on their way to another place and they come to this town or this village called Nain in southern Galilee. And as they come towards the village, they encounter this large funeral procession leaving the village. It's a big funeral, Luke says. There's a big crowd there and they're on the way to bury a young man who has just died. And Luke tells us more specifically about the person who has just died because it's really important for the story and what he's trying to bring out. You see, the person who's died is the only son of a widow. And this is important because it makes, helps us understand what is going on in this story here. Because this is just not, although everyone who dies is an important story, but why did Jesus stop here and raise this young man to life? On seeing the funeral procession, Luke says that, uh, that Je- when Jesus saw her, okay, read that, when Jesus saw her, his heart went out to her and he said, don't cry. Then he stopped the funeral procession and he went up and he touched the wooden frame on which the, be- the body was being carried. And he said, young man, I say to you, get up. Then Luke says that the dead man sat up and began to talk and Jesus gave him back to his mother. This is a remarkable story. Uh, There are only a handful of uh, stories in the Bible in which people are raised to life. And uh, are they embellished? Are they uh, told to make us believe that uh, Jesus is more powerful than he is? Or are they true and trustworthy stories? And if so, why did Jesus choose to raise this person at this time on this day when in his life, he'd probably encountered many funerals. He'd probably been to tons of funerals. When, I, when you and I were living in Malawi, we were always going to funerals because when you live in a close, close-knit community, you're, people are dying. You, the whole community turns out. It's not private like they are today where you only go to your closest relatives' funerals or your closest friends. Everyone is expected to be there. So why did he do that when he'd been to so many funerals? Well, first it's important to see that Jesus is actually moved by compassion in this story. But what's interesting is that the compassion isn't for the dead man. It's actually for the woman, for the widow. And so the reason he's so moved is because being a widow was a very hard situation to be in at that time. You see, and a widow actually losing her only son was considered the worst thing that could happen uh, in the whole world to to people there because it meant utter devastation for that woman. You see, we need to remember that at that time there there was no government support for widows. There was no safety net. A woman whose husband had died and had then had all her other children die was really on her way to complete and utter poverty. And so but was Jesus acting abnormally here? Was it was it just him? No. Because actually what we see in the Bible is actually in other stories where Elijah, the prophet Elijah and the prophet Elisha, they both responded with compassion and raised people to life. And who did those people who were those people that they raised to life? They were sons of widows. You see? And they did this because they also saw human suffering at its deepest level in the plight of the widow who had lost her only son or her only child. In fact, whenever a prophet wanted to talk about the depth of human suffering, which actually resulted from living in a fallen world, they would liken that experience to actually a widow losing her son. In fact, Jeremiah says, this is one example, he says, "...put on sackcloth, my people, and roll in ashes." mourn with bitter wailing as for an only son. This might have been why so many people had turned out to the funeral that day, because for them it also, in their own minds, was the most tragic, tragic event. The Jews Jews knew the reason for deep suffering and pain in life. They knew that uh, it was due to the world in which we live and people being marred by sin... But they also knew that God had promised to do something about that. And they held held these things in tension and and it caused them to have a deep longing. You see, disease, death, blindness, deafness, poverty, brokenness, brokenheartedness. The Bible says that these have come into our world as a result of sin. A result of us being in a fallen and broken world. Not the way that God intended it to be. And in fact, if you read the first few chapters of Genesis, you will see that it it talks about a curse coming on humanity because of the rebellion of the first few people in the Garden of Eden. And so Jews knew this because they had read this in Scripture and they knew it and had it in their own hearts and minds. But they also had a deep longing in their heart because Scripture also talked about a servant who would come, a servant of the Lord, who would come and he would actually usher in a new day, a day that would break the curse of suffering and death. And so they longed for this. They had this twin beliefs in their mind of understanding why things were as they were, but a longing for things to be different. In fact, all Jewish people believe that God would one day bring an end to suffering like the widow was experiencing and all other forms of suffering, including disease and death, through the promised Messiah as prophesied through the prophets. The prophet Isaiah is one who prophesied about this day that was to come, saying that the Lord's anointed would come and he'd bind up up the brokenhearted. He'd proclaim good news to the poor. He'd, pro- he'd bring freedom to the captives. And they would open the eyes of the blind and ears of the deaf so that they could hear. Which is why when Jesus moved by compassion, he raised the, wi- the, uh, widow of the, uh, the son of the, widow of, Na- the uh, widow, of son- widow of Nain's son back to life. It's why the crowd didn't just say, Whoa! Wow, how does a thing like that happen? That's amazing. You see, that's a modern question. What people of that time asked was when they saw Jesus do this, they said, Wow, what does this mean? A great, a great prophet has appeared among us. And they also said, and, and God has finally come to help his people. They saw something in this event which spoke to their hearts. They saw the miracle and they concluded that Jesus was a prophet in the same league as Elijah and Elisha, uh, who had in the past raised sons of widows to life. But there's something bigger also going on here in this story, more than the compassion of Jesus, more than the compassion of the prophet for the, the widows who had lost a son. And so we also, I believe this morning, we also need to grasp the bigger story that's being told here, which, uh, which makes this raising of to life of the widow's son important. Not just for those who experienced it, because we might say, oh, wow, that's great, that's really good for those, uh, for those people who experienced that. But how does it help me? What does it mean for me? What does it mean for each of us this morning? That's the question we want answered, isn't it? And so the answer to this is found in the comments and questions that people actually make after seeing Jesus, they make after seeing Jesus raise the widow of Nain's son back to life. Luke says that the news about these miracles spread all over Judea. And so the news of Jesus' miracles had even gone as far as reaching John the Baptist who was in prison. John was actually there in prison for speaking out against Herod and his marriage. And uh, John was waiting also, though, but also was longing himself for the Messiah to come. Because he was longing, he had a belief that when the Messiah came, he would actually usher in this time, this kingdom of peace. His entire ministry was about calling people to repentance in preparation for the Messiah's arrival. So, when John's disciples came and told him what they had heard Jesus, saw Jesus doing, and when he heard about the miracles that Jesus was doing, he sent a message back to Jesus. And he asked him this question He said, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? This might, allow, this might sound like a fairly sort of ambiguous question. What does that mean? Are you the one? But for people expecting God's Messiah and who were longing for him, it was loaded with meaning. You see, everyone would know in that context what that question meant. Are you the one? Basically, he's asking Jesus, are you the Messiah? Are you the promised one by God, promised by the prophet Isaiah, who will usher in the new kingdom that would bring suffering to an end? And how does Jesus answer? Well, he doesn't just answer with a yes or or, a no, he actually tells John's disciples, Go back and tell John what you have seen and heard. And then he says this He says, The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Now, that's not sort of some random list of miracles that Jesus had performed. What Jesus is actually doing here is he's actually quoting. Directly from Isaiah the prophet. And he's quoting exactly the things that were promised that the Messiah would do. And what he's saying to John, he says, I'm doing those things. What the prophet Isaiah said about the Messiah, I'm doing them. It may sound ambiguous, but for everyone who was listening, it was very clear, a very clear yes. Can you see the bigger story? That's emerging here around this smaller story of Jesus raising the son of the widow of Nain. You see, in fact, it's a, it, it, in fact, it is a bigger story that's surrounding all the miracles that Jesus did and his teachings. Jesus is certainly moved by compassion for the widow of Nain, as were Elijah and Elisha, because they'd lost their sons. But Jesus is actually also moved by compassion for the whole world who, who are actually suffering under the weight of sin, under the curse of sin, which leads to our suffering and pain. And this is why he has come. And, this is, and the miracles that he performs while he was on earth fit into this program because they are there to announce who Jesus is and what he's come to do. You see, I believe in miracles. I believe that they can happen and they do. I believe they do happen. And I also believe that Jesus invites us to pray and ask him to do things that we can't do ourselves. In fact, in John fourteen twelve, Jesus encourages his followers to do just this. He says to his followers to believe that they can see God doing miracles beyond the ones that he did when they rely on his spirit. In fact, there's no clearer scripture to encourage us to be people who pray and expect God to answer them, uh, even for the boldest of things, than that. I've prayed and seen people healed and delivered from demonic spirits. But I've also experienced times when I've longed, just longed and ached for a miracle to happen and not seen it occur and seen the illness and situation actually lead to death and great pain. When we read the story of Jesus raising the widow of Nain's son to life, and when we do that knowing that God has pro- what God has promised through his prophets that he would end suffering and pain and renew the earth, then we can begin to see the biblical understanding of miracles. You see, what they are is they are tasters. They are samples of what is to come. They are samples of what God's kingdom will be like, in which there will be no more sickness, no more pain, no more death. And this is what miracles, the miracles of Jesus were doing in Jesus' day, and they're also playing a similar role in our world and in our life today. There are people who are to help people to know the truth of who Jesus is. And this is what is happening in the story of Jesus raising the widow's son. The people were drawn to believe that Jesus was someone special. They said, oh, he, he's not just a miracle worker, but he's a great prophet. And they said that they saw this miracle, that God has actually finally done something. He's come to help them. Unfortunately for that crowd at that point, they didn't take it far enough to know, really know who he is. But John the Baptist does. The Bible says that Jesus knew people and knew their hearts and he didn't expect people to just to accept him as, as the Messiah without proof. And this is why Jesus answers John the Baptist's question as he does. You see, John was also looking for proof. Jesus says, look at what I'm doing. Listen to what people are saying about me. Ask what is going on and they will tell you what is going on. Don't just take my word for it. Don't just, say, don't just believe what I say about myself. Look at what's happening. Christianity is, is actually built on truth. It's not built on blind acceptance. Some people uh, who might be interested in Christianity might say, oh, it's very interesting, but, but actually how can I know it's true? How can I know all these stories that, uh, in which Jesus is doing these things? How do I know it's true? Others will say, well, I, I just believe. I, uh, you know, I don't worry about the facts. They say, don't look into things too deeply because you might lose your faith. They say, Oh, I don't want to think about the hard questions. I just want to believe. But that's actually not the way Christianity works. Paul doesn't say walk by faith and not by reason, he says walk by faith and not by sight. It doesn't say anywhere in the Bible that we we don't walk by reason. The fact is, the more you think and the more you reflect and wrestle with the resurrection and with the miracles of Jesus and actually do your homework, the more that I believe that they'll persuade you to the truth of the gospel, to the truth of the message, to the truth of who Jesus is. And I'm fully confident in that. And I believe that Jesus is inviting us to do exactly what he asked John to do. Consider what you've seen and what you've heard. That's what we need to do, friends. We need to consider what is before us. You see, as a Christian, I'm not afraid of knowing the truth. There's, there's nothing that we should seek more than knowing the truth, especially about miracles. Miracles are there to point us to what God is doing in the world. And if they're not true, then God is not true, and we're wasting our time. I'm not saying that all the things that people say are miracles are miracles. I'm not saying that at all. We need to verify everything. If you believe that you've been healed of cancer, go and get it checked out. So where is the proof that the miracles Jesus did are true, you might ask? Well, I think if you're open to listen and you're open to examine the evidence, you'll see there's a lot of good evidence that Jesus did perform miracles. In the case of the raising of the widow of Nain's dead son to life, a whole town witnessed that event. This is not some uh, sort of weird UFO sighting by some guy out in the bush after he's had a few beers. Oh, yeah, I saw this hazy sort of light. and wow. You know, this is not one of those sort of stories. It, it was a whole town, a whole village. A dead man sitting up and talking, now that's a big deal. If it was made up, wouldn't someone in that village of Nain have said so? They might not have had Facebook at that time. But they had a plenty of a plenty good enough social network to have spread things around. The message of what Jesus was doing was spreading all around Judea. If he'd have been faking it, don't you think that message would have got around as well? If you just heard the story of a dead man sitting up and talking from a friend of a friend of a friend, you might think, well, that was weird, that's interesting, and then you go back to drinking your coffee. But if a whole village who had turned out to bury a dead guy suddenly sees him sit up and talk, then that's a different kind of story, that's a different kind of evidence, isn't it? And if you do your homework... And I want to encourage you to do that. I hope you do that. Then you'll find that there is this sort of evidence for the other miracles that Jesus did. Most of the miracles that Jesus did were done out in the open. They were not just done in front of a sympathetic crowd either. They were done uh, in, in front of friend and foe. So what will it take, friends, for you to believe that the miracles of Jesus were true you might even ask this morning well is it really even important to believe in them as some of you have already commented can I just believe in Jesus and not believe in the miracles well you can but if you do that you won't believe the things about Jesus that he wants you to believe Because Christianity actually rises and falls completely on one miracle. Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Even Paul tells people in 1 Corinthians 15 that everything of importance in Christianity rests on the resurrection of Jesus being true. Because through the death and resurrection of Jesus, God actually deals with our sin and shame and the resurrection actually is the proof that death is defeated and that there will be a time of no more suffering to come. Paul says, if there was no resurrection, then we are all still in our sin and there is no life beyond this one. And if this is the case, he says, we should be pitied most of all. You gotta love Paul, don't you? So logical but so blunt. Paul was no slouch and uh, he gives good evidence in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 15. I want to encourage you to read that yourself this week, for good evidence for why we can believe that the miracle of Jesus' resurrection is true. Let me just outline them in closing as I finish. He says it's true because reluctant disciples came to believe that it happened only after he appeared to them as the risen Lord. You see, at first, none of those disciples were expecting Jesus to rise from the dead. This is why they rejected him every time he said, I'm going to Jerusalem (laughs) to be crucified or to die. They said, oh, let's not have any of that sort of talk because they actually believed they were part of this movement, this different sort of movement, and he was going to be their leader right through the movement. When he dies, that sort of put an end to the whole thing in their mind. They were limited in understanding. But when Jesus did start to appear in his resurrected state, they also were slow and hard to convince. When women from their group actually went to the tomb to do after burial preparations and came back with a story that an angel, the tomb was empty, there was nothing in it, and an angel had appeared to them and said, Jesus has been, had been raised, they flat out refused to believe it. Ah, oh, what are you talking about? And we can see their skepticism most fully in the disciple Thomas, who wasn't present when Jesus first appeared at the resurrection. When the disciples told Thomas that they had also seen Jesus, he refused to believe. He said, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my fingers where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Thomas is a man of our cultural moment, isn't he? He needed hard evidence. And friends, this is what he got, much to his embarrassment. I love this painting by Caravaggio, The Incredulity of St. Thomas. It shows Thomas' Thomas' finger. He wasn't, he wasn't actually putting his finger into Jesus' side there. Someone else was actually... If you look at the painting closely, that's, that's the disciples behind him's hand guiding it in there. You see, he, he couldn't even bring himself to do it. He couldn't even bring himself to look at Jesus. But Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that we can also have confidence that the miracle of Jesus' resurrection happened for the following reasons. He says, first, it was spoken about ahead of time by, in prophecies. He says, second, it was witnessed by many people, including doubting and disbelieving disciples like Thomas, and as well as 500 other people who saw Jesus, the risen Lord Jesus at one time. Thirdly, the people who saw him were not just anonymous. Paul says that many of them were still living at that time when he wrote his letter and therefore could actually be called upon to give an account. They could be called upon to be eyewitnesses to this event. And last but not least, Paul says that he himself had seen the risen Lord Jesus, which is really significant and significant evidence because there was no one at that time in history who had more invested in disproving Jesus as a fraud than Paul. You see, Paul had the special task of rounding up all the people who believed and proclaimed that Jesus had risen from the dead And his job was to haul them off to court and then throw them in prison or even see them executed. And he went far and wide to do that. And in fact, in his own testimony, he says, On one such journey to Damascus, I was suddenly blinded by a bright light and thrown to the ground. And I heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He couldn't see anyone. Just this bright light. And then he hears these words, Paul. Paul hears these words, that's his other name, because he asks, who are you, Lord? And he hears these words, I am Jesus, who you persecute. Paul found out that day that dead men can talk only when they've been risen from the dead. Friends, what will you do with this evidence? Luke tells us that he actually, if you read the beginning of Luke's gospel, he says that he wrote down this record, He wrote down a record of what eyewitnesses said and he also did a careful investigation of everything he heard. He was a real scholar. He was actually really researching it because he wanted to know the truth about Jesus. And he did so that people like you and I today, 2,000 years later, we can have a trustworthy account of what happened. Trustworthy evidence. And this is what we have, friends. And like Jesus' miracles, they are recorded so that we would believe and put our trust in him and what he's done. The evidence is there. Either Christianity is a complete lie because it's based on myth and legend, and if it's that, then we should reject it. Or if it's true, if it's true, then we need, after considering the evidence, put our faith in Jesus and follow him with our lives. Friends, what will you do today with that evidence? If you've never put your hope and trust in Jesus because you've been sceptical about the truth of miracles, then I want to invite you to take a step today and open yourself to him. Because dead men do talk when they've been risen from the grave. For those of us this morning who do follow Jesus, then what do we do with this evidence? What do we do with with these miracles? Were they just coincidences? Mm, I don't think so. The The miracles of Jesus are not coincidences. Millions of people around the world who claim to experience them every day don't consider them to be coincidences. But I know there's one thing that's certain. If you don't ask God to answer your prayers then you won't have answers to your prayers and so I believe that in this story there's a call for us to be people who pray to actually really believe and take God at his word because if you never pray for something that you are desperate to happen guess what? How do you get an answer for something you don't ask? It is, as William Temple said, when I pray, coincidences happen. And when I don't, they don't. Friends, I want to encourage you today to pray for that son or daughter To ask God to do the thing that you can't do, that no one else can do for that person. Won't you take the courage to do that? For that friend, for that relative who is really sick, won't you take the courage to pray for them? Because when you pray, coincidences happen. When you don't pray, coincidences don't happen. Friends, what will you do with that this morning? That's the question that I want to leave with you. And My prayer is that you would, you would be prompted to be people who pray, to begin to ask God for things more and more and more and, and put your hope in Jesus this morning. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for the widow of Nain. We thank you for the story of the rising to life of her son, an incredible story. one that defies logic. But Lord, we believe that you are here with us through your spirit, that you are inviting us into a relationship with you, in which you, which is a supernatural sort of relationship in and of itself. Lord, I pray that you would help us to believe, to trust in you, to actually open ourselves up, to be people who pray and ask you for things. And I pray that you would give us the faith to do that and the courage to do that. And I pray that you would help us when things don't work out as, as we pray, to trust in you even in those times and hoping for that great day when there will be no more suffering and no more pain. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.